Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Damon Linker of The Week and Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal. Sitting in for Linda Chavez this week is Bulwark publisher Sarah Longwell, and our special guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist George F. Will. Thank you, one and all. Our first topic this week is going to be a look back. Uh, it's been uh, just a little over a year since the pandemic uh, really began, or at least since the, the lockdown part of it um, began. And uh, it's a good moment as people are getting vaccinated and things are beginning to uh, look look up. Um, to look back at what went right and what went wrong. Um, so I, I'd like to begin with you, uh, uh, Bill Galston. Uh, one of the things that came up on this very podcast was that a number of you all were saying we needed to invoke the Defense Production Act and make uh, respirators or, or ventilators uh, because it was thought that that was a desperate need. It turned out we didn't really need that many ventilators. It turned out they weren't that effective against this disease. Any second thoughts on that score? Well, absolutely. Uh, when each pandemic is different and each one is a learning experience, and we learned through experience that ventilators were ineffective in many cases and positively dangerous in others. Uh, of course, that became more germane as new and more effective procedures and also therapies came online. Uh, it was thought to be state of the art uh, when the pandemic broke out and it turned out that it wasn't. And that was the first of many discoveries that we made along the one year road that we've traveled. Right. But if we had, as as lots of people were urging, if we had invoked the Defense Production Act and, and you know, put factories on the job of creating all of these ventilators, um, it would have been worse, right? Because we would have had even less opportunity to pivot and uh, try other things. Well, actually, actually, I'm not I'm not convinced of that. It it wouldn't have taken so long uh, to retool an auto plant as a ventilator factory, uh, the auto equipment would have been warehoused and then reinstalled afterwards. So I don't think, I don't think it would have been a disaster if we'd done it. Uh, in retrospect, it would have been ill-advised, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. okay. life is lived forward and uh, understood backward. Sure, sure. Um, George, as you look back, um, what do you see as the biggest mistakes and the, and the biggest accomplishments of the past year? The biggest mistake was in messaging. Again, the people were frightened and curious and attentive. And so when the government was saying, uh, this is terrible, but this is not serious. And they were getting this static out of Washington. I think that complicated things because the, the whole point of this exercise was to get this nation of unheardable people herd immunity. <laughs> achieve herd immunity, you have to be like a herd for a little while. And that runs against uh, the American grain. And it runs, there's a strand in America that I call country music manliness. And that is, guys say, look, I'm a beer-drinking, bass-fishing, truck-driving good old boy, and no itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny virus is going to make me put on a mask. You have to get over that. Uh, I mean, that's a strand of American life that has its uses, but uh, not, not now, not in the middle of a pandemic. And so the, the, the big mistake, I think, was that. The, the, the big achievement was, uh, and let's run up the flag for big pharma, much abused much of the time. Mm was the fact that we threw money at the problem and we solved it. Uh, it was, I mean, to produce two and a half or three, however you want to count them, vaccines in a short period of time. I've spent a lot of time just as a kind of hobby looking at the Manhattan Project, how we, the government in, uh, I think, 1942, bought 55,000 acres of absolute wilderness in eastern Tennessee, nothing there. And boom, suddenly there was the town of Oak Ridge and some of the great physics facilities in the world. Uh, it really does work when the government gets uh, single-minded. 
And I think that's what we did right. Sarah, um, one of the, speaking of three cheers for, for big pharma, um, one of the things that the left has traditionally critiqued about the U.S. Uh, healthcare industry and system is that we pay more for prescription drugs than any other advanced country. And that is true. Um, but what we get for that is that we get innovation, we get new drugs because it's worth it to the pharmaceutical companies to invest in research and development because they know they have a really good market here. Um, even if other countries limit their profits, we don't, so, or at least not that much. Um, and arguably, right, um, if it had not been for that thriving private industry called the pharmaceutical industry, we might not have been so fortunate as to get, as to have all the scientists available to do the vaccine work so fast. Yeah, this hits all of my sort of conservative pleasure centers, uh, the, the capitalism, the innovation, the globalism, people pitching in together um, to solve a, a massive problem, uh, you know, yeah, research and, and you know, public-private partnerships, uh, all of that, all of that great stuff. I agree with George that uh, the vaccine is something that We've sort of, I don't know that we've celebrated it enough. Uh, I mm -hmm. feel like we should, this is like a tremendous human achievement, the speed with which uh, this is this is coming out. I mean, we, we I think we were all shocked to see how long the pandemic had the potential to drag on. Mm -hmm. um, but but it was clear by the middle of it that it could, go, it could go on for a very, very long time. And so we should be feeling ecstatic that we're, you know, all in the next couple of months, like we could very, very quickly be back to normal. But I just want to say, not that I, the, the vaccine to me is, you know, you sort of asked, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? There's not that much we got right beyond the vaccine, right? We got a, way too much of it wrong. And just to add on to, to some of what George said before, I, I wanted, I, it had always felt to me like in a crisis that America could pull together and get it right. It wasn't just the messaging. It was the fact that somehow we managed to polarize this virus and put it into our conventional political paralysis to the point where the things that were the mitigations, whether it's the vaccine now or whether it's masks, became, you know, these totems for our factionalism. Um, and, and that to me is, is uh, the sickness was not just the pandemic. The sickness was how we were incapable as a country of, of sort of mitigating the problem because of our polarization. Yeah, the um, the group in America that is most vaccine resistant right now is not, as was predicted, African Americans because of the long history of uh, suspicion, you know, and the, the Tuskegee experiment and so forth. Nope, it's not African Americans. It's Republican men. Uh, they are the ones who are half of Republican men are saying that they have no intention of getting. A, uh, a vaccine, kind of what George was saying about, you know, I'm not going to let some little bitty virus mess with me, right? Um, <clears throat> but uh, Damon, I want to want to bring you in here. Um, the um, the in addition to, you know, not all of the um, of the bad responses to this virus were traceable to Donald Trump, though he certainly made many, many, many terrible mistakes and arguably cost hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, but, uh, but of course, Governor Cuomo made terrible mistakes and others. And then, you know, there's one thing that I have to say did make, I found most dispiriting, and that was the role of the CDC. Um, the FDA deserves a little bit of blame too. Uh, but the CDC is you know uh, this this organ this this uh, government entity that I would have thought would be the gold standard for the world in responding to this. This is what they're for, um, and uh, and they made one blunder after another, and even willfully misled people. For example, about mask wearing. Um, are you uh, are you as distressed about the uh, dysfunction that that was evident in the CDC? 
I am. I, I find it very distressing, but I do tend to to view it in the broader context of our general ignorance. The problem comes from us looking, understandably, uh, there's really a, no other way it could be, looking to these institutions and political leadership like uh, Governor Cuomo or Donald Trump when he was president or any of the leaders around the world for leadership and authority to tell us what to do. And at the in the early stages of the disease, we truly did not know. We didn't know if the disease was mainly transmitted uh, through aer aerosol in the air or by touching things. I mean, I don't know if you remember when we would come back from the grocery store last March, Absolutely. early April, yeah. we'd like, I'd like spray all, all of the packaging and wipe it down as if, uh, as if they were like, uh, you know, when you come back and you uh, use Purell on your hands, you were doing that to every item you brought into your house. We'd get like mail. The strain. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I put my mail in a basket and let it sit there for three or four days. So the virus oh, would gosh. die. You really went yeah. overboard, Damon. Well, back then this was held to be reasonable. Um, okay. And and so, uh, you know, I, we, we still have that basket by the door, although, you know, we, we don't really abide by the two or three day thing, but um, it's a nice change for the household. Um, and so we learned over time that actually, yeah, the best thing you can do is to wear a mask. That that because it is mainly transmitted through the air. And so if everybody were to wear a mask and you stay, you know, out of each other's faces by roughly six feet, that will minimize the spread. But we didn't know that right away. And the problem is that the CDC exists to pronounce on what to do. And they were pronouncing at a time when they really didn't know what to do. But the CDC doesn't feel like it can stand up before the country and the world and declare, you know, we don't really know what this disease is like, how it gets transmitted, how bad it is. Uh, does viral load matter? Uh, does it not? Uh, does it transmit like the flu on surfaces or like measles? Is it how contagious is it? All of these things we needed to learn. As Bill said, you live forward and understand backwards. We know a lot more now. And so that, uh, that uh, you know, has, has helped. But the danger is that when these authorities, whether they are institutions or individual elected officials, do make these pronouncements and then get proven wrong in in an environment of uncertainty it it degrades our uh, our willingness to trust these institutions just this week i mean you know we all know of all the debates in america about school openings and you have some people saying they should stay closed mainly teachers and certain teacher union uh, are saying we should keep the schools closed for safety and spreading the disease and then a lot of other people saying schools are not major vectors of transmission this is ridiculous it's much worse for the kids to be out of school and for their families having them home all the time just this week uh, in Europe, where they are well underway into their third uh, surge of the virus, uh, Belgium was pronouncing that actually the reason why they're going into uh, their third surge is because of schools. Schools are the major vector of transmission. Is that true? I don't know. That would seem strange that that's true in Belgium, and it doesn't seem to be true in other countries. But Either it is true and we got it wrong or they're wrong and trying to deflect their own ignorance. And the result will be that fewer Belgians will believe and trust their own government. So it's it's a function of the need for authority with a, a kind of paucity of hard, solid information in a, in a hard situation. Right. Um, well, I... I um... I agree with everything that's been said pretty much. And I would just add um, that uh, going back to some of the discussions that we had um, uh, over the past year, um, it does seem to me to be a good idea to stockpile PPE because those are the kinds of things that are always going to be needed no matter what the nature of the disease, whether it's transmitted through the air or on surfaces or whatever. Um, so that seems to me to be a, a reasonable sort of precaution to prevent the next um, outbreak uh, or, or deal, not prevent, but to deal with, uh, to cope with. Um, and um, 
then I'm going to say something that uh, has gotten me into a lot of trouble with my readers um, because I noted in a column that uh, one of the things that we learned that most people do not want to talk about is that our levels of overweight and obesity in this country made us quite vulnerable. That if you look around the world, one of the things you find is that countries that have over 50% of their population that falls into the category of overweight or obese um, have much higher death rates than those that uh, that are more trim and fit. So um, that is a lesson I doubt anybody will want to focus on, but it does appear to be pretty, the data on this are pretty robust. Uh, just you know, a couple of quick comments, not exactly begging to differ, but begging to add. Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, I was interested to hear uh, Sarah say that you know the the performance of the drug companies had you know had gotten her conservative juices flowing. Uh, well, if so, it was the kind of conservatism uh, that we saw in World War II, where uh, government turned the United States into the arsenal of democracy by throwing huge amounts of money at, at problems. And it wasn't just the drug companies anticipating markets from the vaccines. Uh, they were given billions of dollars in development money, except Pfizer, which refused to accept it. And in addition, they were guaranteed government markets for whatever they could produce, even if the demand turned out to be smaller than what they were capable of producing. So it was state capitalism that got this job done and not simply capitalism. Uh, oh boy, and- Sarah did say public-private. She did mention that. Public-private partnerships, but you know, these, these, these pharma companies, they save civilization, but Bill Galston still can't give them credit. I'm giving them, I'm giving them, I'm giving them plenty of credit, but, you know, but, uh, you know, you also have to give big government some credit. And I think that's what George was doing. And speak, speaking of George, you know, I was interested uh, I was interested to hear his reference to country and Western uh, America uh, because, you know, some years ago, Walter Russell Mead distinguished four American traditions, uh, you know, the Wilsonian, uh, the Jeffersonian, the Hamiltonian, uh, and, uh, and the Jacksonian. And interestingly enough, in the past century, the Republican Party has, has cycled through all of those phases you know, it was it was Hamiltonian at the beginning of the 20th century. It was, you know, it, it, it was the bearer of the of the progressive tradition. After the New Deal took over Hamiltonianism, uh, the Republican Party became Jeffersonian. Uh, and it was Jeffersonian for a long time. Uh, then there was a brief flirtation with Wilsonianism uh, during the second Bush administration, uh, Bush 43. And now the Republican Party has squarely become the party of Jacksonian America. Uh, and the and we are wrestling with the consequences of that. An interesting historical progression. Uh, George. Let me say, first of all, something about the swerve back to the question of the CDC. CDC, I think, uh, demonstrates a propensity of promiscuous mission creep in this country. New York Times is formally a newspaper, but it decided it was going to recast American history and go into the curriculum distribution business for the 1619 Project, which it did predictably badly. Uh, The Federal Reserve is not content with preserving the currency as a store of value, or even with the second part of its now dual mandate of maximizing employment, whatever that means, has now decided that it is going to discern financial risk to the financial system from climate change, for which it has zero aptitude because no one else has any aptitude for that vague mandate. And those are two examples. And the CDC, I think, is a third If you look at what the CDC has actually been doing for the last 15 or 20 years, you'll see that it's gone far beyond anticipating and controlling uh, infectious diseases. The reason the CDC is located in Atlanta is that was where, uh, in the southern belt of malaria, uh, we had a huge problem uh, many, many years ago, happily, uh, 
with, with an infectious disease, but the CDC, it seems to me, has also lost its focus. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and I would just, uh, Bill, I just want to circle back real quick on the, uh, on the subject of, um, of the pharmaceutical companies, you know, except that you're absolutely right. They, they relied upon government guarantees of, you know, uh, that they would purchase the vaccines that were produced. That's, that's, that's right. But um, my point earlier was that if we had a more government controlled um, pharmaceutical sector in general, as was the preference of people on the left, we might not have had the capacity uh, to gear up so quickly to produce the vaccines. That's speculative. I agree, but um, we'll never know, will we, Mono? But but just to this point, or the original research, I mean, the, the MRNA uh, research, like that existed, that, that was, that was things that people had been investing in and and working on for some time. So I, I, just to say, I mean, there was a reason that it was brought together so fast and it was, but it, and it was the culmination of years of research and effort. Okay. Moving to um, Biden's new deal. Uh, the um, the president is said to be feeling very optimistic about getting even more spending uh, through Congress. He's talking about something like another $3 trillion on infrastructure and universal pre-K and all kinds of things. Um, so um, my question is, let's start with uh, George Will. Um, are you... Um, are you concerned about the uh, the the potential? Well, w- what is your feeling about this this vast amount of spending? We talked last week on this show or two weeks ago about uh, the inflation risk, so we have that covered. But uh, but beyond that, um, what do you think the uh, the consequence will be? Some people are saying this is a new New Deal. What's your view? It's not a new New Deal until many of these things that are ostensibly and theoretically temporary are made permanent. Mm -hmm. I expect there'll be an effort to do that to absolutely everything. But until it's done, it's not quite a a new New Deal. Because uh, Franklin Roosevelt said the New Deal was a new relationship between the citizen and the central government. And this is not a a change in that relationship. It's an intensifying of it. I think it advances the more than century-old progressive agenda of increasing dependency on government as a good in itself. It also, it, I mean, there are two ways to finance government, current taxes and future taxes, and that's not going to change. Uh, what, what we've seen is modern monetary theory, which is deplored by Republicans but practiced by Republicans, is praised by Democrats and practiced by Democrats exuberantly. And the theory is that if the if R is, is less than G, that is, if the interest rate on government borrowing is smaller than the growth rate of the economy, there are essentially no limits to the amount that can be safely uh, borrowed by the government. As long as, and here's the enormous asterisk over that, as long as the risk of inflation for the foreseeable future, that's the crucial term, uh, is slight. The problem is, how far is the foreseeable future for the economics profession? Mm-hmm. April 2008, the foreseeable future did not include September 2008. So uh, I, I'm skeptical about the, the the serene confidence that economists at the Federal Reserve Board and beyond have about uh, their mastery of, of events. Yeah, Sarah, one of the points that uh, Megan McArdle, a uh, frequent guest on this podcast, has made uh, is that um, there there is a phenomenon in in science where um, a, a new breakthrough doesn't happen until the old people have died off. Um, but there's another phenomenon which is in economics, which is that people don't worry about bubbles if they haven't personally lived through one. And so if there are not enough people who are in decision-making roles right now who have seen the the uh, ravages of inflation, they say, oh, you know, it's really it's really worth it. But 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 leaving leaving inflation aside because we've devoted a lot of attention to that on this uh, podcast. Um th- there's another aspect of of all of this and that is that um you know, over the last 
40 years, one of the most important movements, it seems to me, was the neoconservative movement, not the neoconservatism of foreign policy that people associate with foreign wars, but rather the sort of um, chastened liberals who saw the great society and said, you know, uh, sometimes these well-intentioned government programs don't take into account the unintended consequences and they wind up doing more harm than good, or they wind up doing harm that they didn't anticipate, certainly. Um, and, And I find that while there's a little bit of that attitude on the right, not enough, um, there's really seems to be none on the left. I mean, there's just this shovel money out the door for every program. You know, there are 40 federal worker training programs in the federal government, at least. Um, and uh, and the Biden administration is just seeming to, you know, uh, not have any of that modesty about its plans or or about what these programs do. Yeah, modesty is not on the agenda right now. I mean, this is this is Biden going in his mind and in the left's mind, you know, big and bold and going for structural social change. I mean, I was trying to read about the infrastructure package, uh, which is looking to be about a $3 trillion package and just looking at some of the things contained in there. Now, there are a bunch of things that I think could garner widespread support. I think there's a lot of Republicans and and business types who would say, boy, we need to do something about our crumbling bridges, our roads, our our electric grids. But also they want to do things in the infrastructure package like uh, free college, um, you know, paying for childcare. And and one of the things that's amazed me and, and the COVID bill was sort of similar is the way that Democrats are kind of treating it just feels like they're treating these. I guess I'm going to invoke a, a country song too. Um, but there, there's this there's this song about you know living like you're dying, and you know you go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing, and you jump on a bull, <laughs> and it feels like I listen to too much country music. But it there's a there's a a sense that it's like man, we've got two years. We are going to push as much through as we can. And I'm my my concern is actually. You know, I've spent the last four years of the of the Trump administration very fearful about our democracy, our ability to have a government that can work. Um, and I think that the Democrats kind of go for broke mentality where there's not a good faith attempt to figure out how to let Republicans play the one healthy role that they could really play in some of these, which is to find a way for some restraint, to find a way to make these bills more targeted, um, to force some compromise. You know, I, I, I hope that that comes back into the picture because my concern otherwise is that Democrats continue to either talk about eliminating the filibuster or using the reconciliation process to kind of pass very big progressive wish list items that may or may not be particularly well targeted. I mean, look, I thought there was, I wish that they had worked together on the COVID bill because I think that the Republicans could have come in and cut, um, you know, several, several billion out of that, that, that was poorly targeted and made it a better bill. And, um, you know, there's an option for that to happen on infrastructure as well. But I think that there's just this this brokenness where everybody thinks, boy, you could never get 10 Republicans, so we're not even going to bother trying, and we're just going to figure out how to jam these things through through reconciliation, and how will they get paid for? Well, you know, we'll raise some taxes on the rich, but like, you can't. Like, there's just not enough money. Um, and so it, it, it comes down to like, how much are we going to borrow? And look, the problem is, is that the Republicans now have no moral authority which with, with which to talk about the debt and the deficit because it was it basically disappeared for 4 years while Trump mm-hmm. was in office and while they passed their tax bill but but somebody maybe maybe it's just a few of us are still here to say there's it feels impossible that this bill will never come due Damon what's your sense of how this will play politically um you know, so Biden's uh, gamble seems to be that, you know, let the Republicans talk about Dr. Seuss and cancel culture. I'm going to pass all this legislation that they're going to really like, and it's going to be enough to confound the usual uh, pattern in the midterms where the president's party loses seats. 
Well, it certainly is an original way to try to govern. Uh, and one way in which what's going on really is not like the New Deal, in addition to what uh, George has said, is that uh, in 1933, when FDR became president, uh, the margin in the Senate was 58 to 36, with the Democrats holding close to a 60-seat majority. And then in the House, it was 311 to 117. Uh, that was what we used to call a mandate, but we don't really see those anymore, given how narrowly divided everything tends to be these days. Um, but, you know, we're essentially dealing with, with a, a dead tied Senate with only the vice president holding the tie breaking vote. And then, and then a handful of seats, a razor thin majority for the Democrats. And they are proposing to undertake something of the size of the new deal with only that support behind it. And so I think that is incredibly risky. They are essentially making the gamble exactly as you set it up for me, Mona, by essentially saying, if we, for these two years, spend and spend and spend, you know, make college free, maybe uh, maybe forgive all student loans, uh, do all of these other things uh, with this, with these go gobs and gobs of money that is just kind of winking into existence at the Fed, uh, then that will effectively be like, to speak in cynical terms, that we've bribed enough Americans that they'll go and vote for us in, in, uh, two, in less than two years, and that will have the effect of giving us that overwhelming support and majority and mandate after we've already done these things, which then they would, of course, take as, a, as an indication that they should do yet even more with now their larger margins. I just, my major concern over the last even four years of the awfulness of Trump has always been even more than Trump has been the context of Trump, which is polarization. And uh, the fact that things seem to be going uh, in a kind of centrifugal way where one side's overreaction uh, prompts an equal and opposite overreaction on the other side. Maybe that's unfair because Trump was kind of equal to no one in his awfulness. But I do worry that this is going to set up the Republicans which, with a far more potent argument to make on the other side than they would otherwise have had uh, with only Trumpian acting out in their, uh, in their toolbox heading into the midterms and then in 2024. Yeah. Um, Bill, you... Um you write often about the possibility for bipartisan compromise, um, but um, you know it's been pointed out that uh, that the the parties have less incentive to compromise when the possibility of retaking control exists. So you know if you're the if if the if the Democrats have you know two thirds of the seats and the Republicans have one third of the seats in the Senate, you're going to get a lot of deals because that's the best the Republicans can hope for. But if it's 50-50, um, the Republicans think, well, you know, I, I'm, it's not in my interest to compromise. It's in my interest to oppose and then to run on that and possibly regain power. Um, so um, in light of that, um, how do you see this playing out politically? Well, uh, you've just accurately summarized the 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 theory put forward by uh, political scientist Francis Lee, formerly of the University of Maryland, now of Princeton Princeton University, and in a very short period of time, it has become more of one of the more widely accepted empirical findings of of recent political science, and I think there's a lot to it. Uh, I would point out that when the Democrats had a massive margin during the first six years of the New Deal, there wasn't a lot of compromising going on either. So Fran's, Fran's theory most accurately describes uh, the, the period between the, 19, the 1950s and the end of the 1970s. And that's not to take anything away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would, uh, I'd also point out uh, that this is 
this is a classic gamble on the electorate. Uh, the, the Biden administration has a theory of the case. That is, it will adopt uh, a huge number of expensive programs, push them through by any means possible, uh, and the American people will judge them by their results, which were positive, which they hope will be positive, and will return the Democrats to power with an even greater majority uh, in four years, while warding off the usual second you know, midterm slump. Uh, what is the model for that? Of course, the first New Deal where Roosevelt won big in 1932, but because the American people thought his bold, untested, unprecedented programs had succeeded, they gave him an even bigger margin of victory in 1936. So this is, this is almost like a bet on parliamentary government, where a single party pushes through its program uh, and then hopes to the country will benefit from these programs and the American people will, will respond affirmatively uh, in the electoral forum. And we'll see. You know, it is, as Damon said, a, an inherently risky strategy because if the programs are not seen as having succeeded or you know, to, you know, to cite George, you know, if it turns out that the economists are unreasonably and unwisely unfearful of the consequences of spending this much money this fast, uh, we could indeed have a rerun of the 1970s and early 1980s, which I, as the bearer of a 30-year mortgage at 13 and 7 eighths percent in the early 1980s, remember all too well. Hmm. <clears throat> all right. Let's turn now to, um, to relations with China. Um, if you all recall, uh, one of President Trump's uh, themes during the 2020 campaign was that if uh, Biden were elected, we'd all be speaking Chinese by now, um, that, uh, that we'd be in their pocket. Uh, so let's start with you this time, Damon. Um, what did you make of uh, Anthony Blink Anthony Blinken's uh, encounter with uh, his uh, interlocutors from China over in Alaska this week? Uh, I think he did pretty well, all things considered. Uh, our, our friend Eli Lake wrote a, a, a nice uh, column for Bloomberg this week uh, in which he, he gave him uh, a polite round of applause for handling some tough situations uh, rather deftly. It's a very complicated balancing act we're in here. Uh, where we need to be tough, but it's a very, it, it's, it's precarious. There's a lot, many, many variables in the world going on. And, um, and we, we have to walk a fine line. So I don't know how much else I have to say about it other than he did fine for now. Uh, but there's a lot, uh, more risky going on. I think uh, the situation, uh, over Taiwan, could become very dangerous at almost any time. Uh, and actually, I'm though I'm going to hold off on saying much more about that until I have my um, my final segment recommendation, which has to do with that issue in particular, if that's okay. Sure thing. Uh, <clears throat> George, I, um, I found Secretary Blinken's comments quite refreshing. I thought he was very uh, measured in what he said to China. He told the truth. He said, uh, the United States relationship with China will be competitive where it should be, collaborative where it can be, and adversarial where it must be. That seemed like a very grown-up message. I think so. No, I think they're off to a terrific start and say as much in my column in today's papers. Uh, first of all, I think they're changing the rhetorical tone, which is that human rights is coming back to a central role in American foreign policy, particularly with these people, the, the Chinese Leninist regime. But this uh, Biden himself has an interesting rhetorical past in this regard. It was he who said about a decade ago that President Xi does not have a democratic, small d, democratic bone in his body. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Donald, it was uh, 
Biden, who in August 2025, months before Secretary Pompeo heading out the door, uh, declared that China's behavior with the Uyghurs is genocide. It was Biden who called it genocide five months earlier. Uh, it, it seems to me that the the Chinese are stepping high, wide, and plentiful, and as a result, look increasingly obnoxious to the, to the rest of the world because they are obnoxious. And uh, I, I think they'll they'll pay a price for this. The, the, they have the feeling that the wind is at their back, or as our progressive friends like to say, that they're on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, I would urge everyone to read Gordon Chang's piece in the National Interest that's out, I think, just today on the coming demographic collapse in China. It's baked in the cake as a result of the one-child policy that there's going to be a huge contraction of uh, the Chinese population that they cannot counter with immigration because they have no aptitude or appetite for that. Uh, Chang argues that by the end of this century, the United States population will be larger than that of China. Oh, uh, so the, the, the Chinese sense that uh, that uh, they are rising and we're declining is, uh, to say no more, dramatically mistaken. Yeah, <clears throat> um, Sarah uh, Khrushchev, I think, memorably said, "We will bury you." Uh, uh, that that didn't work out as as he had planned, um, but uh, but I'm curious to hear your your views on um, on how on this change of of tone because one of the things that uh, the people on the right tell themselves is that Donald Trump was really tough on China because he imposed some tariffs, um, but he was utterly silent on. Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the cyber attacks. I mean, he he never raised human rights at all um, vis-a-vis China. And and it strikes me that that was a real um, profanation of uh, of what the U.S. should be. <clears throat> Do you know, I'll never forget, um, and I, I, you know, this was never, this was never confirmed, but in John Bolton's book, he has this anecdote about Trump specifically giving Xi permission on the concentration camps. Correct. Remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And He I, said he thought it was a good idea. Yeah, you know, I mean, this was the thing about Donald Trump's foreign policy is that it was, um, it's not the, was it, it's sort of the inverse of the the walk quietly but carry a big stick. It was all bluster and and breast beating um, and, and, and not much else. Now, Biden is, of course, continuing the tariffs, um, I, I've been getting reports that during this press conference, uh, President Biden is holding his his first press conference, um, that he actually repeated what what George brought up that that while Xi is very smart, he doesn't have a small d democratic bone in his body, um, which means that he is continuing to stand up uh, and say that that this is you know this is about a competition between autocracy and democracy, and that is the right framing. Um, and, and I also think one other thing I, I, that's important that the Biden administration seems to be recommitting to is really bringing our allies along on this, um, and, and actually having, you know, relationships with other countries where we're all, uh, working together, uh, to deal with China. And, and that's, um, look, I, I would say that being a Republican for me for a long time, there were a lot of foreign policy reasons that I felt like the Republicans were um, eh, tougher, uh, you know, more invested in, um, I don't know, pushing back on on other countries, you know, like China, like Russia. And, and Donald Trump just absolutely um, threw all of that away. And it is just nice to have, you, you said the word, and I think this is it, sort of adults in the room where you may disagree on pieces of it, uh, but you feel like serious people are at the wheel um, having these discussions. Uh, Bill Galston, uh, uh, when you look into the um, actual 
conversation that took place in in Alaska. It's it's interesting because uh, you know the U.S. Well, for, the Chinese arrived loaded for bear because we had just imposed sanctions on some of their people for their treatment of Hong Kong and other things, along with the European Union, which is as Sarah saying, you know, that we are getting back together, getting the old gang back together. Um, and so they were, they, they arrived already, uh, already angry. Um, and, uh, George mentions in his column that, you know, the Biden is cultivating the so-called quad, which is the U S India, Japan, and Australia, where we have, uh, our, um, combined GDP, you know, just dwarfs, uh, China's. Um, and so it was kind of funny to see that when you go into the transcript, you know, the, the Chinese representative was saying, well, you know, we have our friends in the world too, you know. We've got Russia and Iran and North Korea. <laughs> yep. Uh, look, uh, you know, geopolitically, the Chinese are not in as strong a position as they appear to believe they are. Uh, although the relationship between their rhetoric and their beliefs is a very, a very open question. But here's my fear. My fear is that the Chinese believe their own talking points, that they genuinely believe that they're rising and we're falling, uh, and, uh, and they may also be aware of the fact, uh, since they do a lot of careful studies of their own demography and economy, that they may never be in a stronger position than they will be in the next 10 to 20 years vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its allies. And they may be muttering to themselves some version of the, uh, you know, of the Shakespearean uh, couplet uh, that there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. I think that this will be a very dangerous period in U.S.-Chinese relations uh, and you know the the most likely flashpoint on the way to war, as Damon has indicated, is is Taiwan. There may be others, uh, and I hope very much that in addition to tough words, uh, we we do what is necessary. Sorry, Bill, you uh, you were unmuted there for a second. that I hope we do everything necessary to improve our situation, uh, to bolster our strength at home and abroad, uh, so that we send a credible signal to the Chinese that all-out conflict with the United States is not in their interest as well as anyone else's. Uh, and uh, we, we had better get that message across as credibly as possible and make it stick for the next two decades until the, you know, the peak of the crisis has passed. Mm. Um, you're, when you mentioned how dangerous it is when a country sees itself as being on the ascendant and others in eclipse, it uh, reminds me of uh, the period uh, right before World War One, where Kaiser Wilhelm uh, was convinced that it was time for, you know, as he put it, uh, it was Germany's moment in the sun, um, and uh, and was convinced that uh, England was on the decline, and uh, we know how that how that ended. So um, so yeah, it is it has real uh, danger attached to it. Bill, if you wouldn't mind though, just take a couple of minutes and talk about uh, the R and D gap because reading your column on that was kind of sobering that. Uh, the Chinese are really, um, you know, they're they're devoting a lot to R and D and and uh, and you know high tech. And uh, why don't you just talk about that for a couple of minutes? They sure are. Uh, I hope that most most people, or at least most people who follow politics these days, uh, have become aware in recent years of the Made in China 2025 policy. Uh, which is an effort, a massive investment effort on the part of the Chinese government to seize what everybody to seize what everybody recognizes to be the commanding heights of the technology future, which will you know, which will lead to economic fortune and also potentially to military dominance. Uh, and the Chinese have 
Chinese have gotten a big head start. We're beginning to wake up. Uh, there's bipartisan sponsorship in both the House and the Senate, in the Senate, including the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, for a bill called the, End, you know, the Endless Frontiers Act, uh, which is designed to make strategic investments to counter the Chinese uh, surge in that area. Uh, I think the chances of, of that bill's passing are, are pretty good. But uh, whether we can catch up to the Chinese in, in time to avoid a real technology gap, which would be part of their assumption uh, that they can deal successfully with the conflict with the United States remains to be seen. And I hope very much that some smart young senator 20 or 30 years from now does not feel impelled to publish a book entitled Why America Slept. Hmm. Okay, we now come to our final segment, something we would like to highlight or lowlight. Um, Sarah Longwell, start with you. Okay, I would like to talk about Sidney Powell. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, but I just the, my frustration with Sidney Powell, who has recently her lawyers uh, the the lawsuit. You know, she's being sued by Dominion. Her lawyers have mounted a defense, which uh, says that. Uh, no reasonable person uh, or group of people would take her claim seriously, uh, that it was hyperbolic and political speech, and therefore she can't be held accountable. Um, now, forget the fact that essentially she is calling a massive chunk of right-wing media outside uh, the boundaries of reasonable, um, since so many of them did take her claims and uh, run with them. But my bigger concern is that this is a news story that I think is the kind of thing that goes around Twitter and that, you know, people kind of dunk on Sidney Powell and her lawyers. But it is not going to get the kind of airing that the days and days of her misinformation did. She She did an enormous amount of damage. I mean, the numbers about how many uh, Republicans believe that the election was stolen, believe that the, that the machines are faulty and that our, I wasn't doing a focus group with Georgia voters and there was a gentleman who referenced that, you know, our votes shouldn't be sent to other countries to be counted. I mean, <laughs> she did an enormous amount of damage to um, our faith in elections or Americans' faith in elections. And um, to have her now say that... Um, you know, it was all a joke and nobody should have taken me seriously in the first place is appalling. Uh, but I'm also concerned that um, that people aren't going to to hear that, that they won't know. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, as I noted earlier, uh, my choice has to do uh, with China and Taiwan. Uh, and I want to point to uh, a very good, very long uh, opinion column in Bloomberg this week by uh, Neil Ferguson titled A Taiwan Crisis May Mark the End of the American Empire. Now, I wouldn't endorse quite that an apocalyptic uh, reading of the situation, which is sort of how Ferguson's column ends up. But I do think that it's a very smart look at what is by far the biggest threat confronting the United States right now. Uh, and that is one uh, rooted in the kind of structural tendency of ascending powers to head into a collision course with powers that are on top. And the power on top, of course, is us, and the ascending power is China. Ferguson relies pretty heavily on the kind of analytic framework of Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, uh, about the, the kind of Thucydidean structure uh, from the ancient historian Thucydides, um, that, uh, that seems to, uh, be contributing to, uh, a situation where, again, no, nothing is inevitable in the world, but there are, there are all kinds of reasons why China could see it in its own interest as necessary to take Taiwan, achieve its ultimate goal there, which has been in place for decades in the hopes that it could perhaps demonstrate to the world and to its own citizens that 
uh, that it can stand up to the United States and that our aspirations to be a global power are by this point pretty hollow. Um, Ferguson's most uh, kind of uh, nerve-wracking contention in the in this piece is that it's entirely possible that in a certain situation, the United States could lose in a conflict with China over Taiwan. And you can just spin out in your heads what the geopolitical consequences of that would be. So uh, if for nothing else, then uh, for some provocation, I'd look to Ferguson. And I would also note that I, I don't take Gordon Chang's uh, demographic analysis and the national interest all that seriously, if for no other reason than Chang wrote a book 20 years ago titled The Coming Collapse of China, which either means that that book was wrong or he his prescience uh, extended very, very far into the future. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, did you know that Thucydides, in addition to being a historian, was a general? Yes, of um, course. He was, yeah, he was yeah, a general he was in the Peloponnesian the War. The Peloponnesian War that he wrote about. Yeah. Yes, excellent. Um, yes. I'm sure he was completely objective, though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, George Will. Uh, before getting to my item, I, uh, on the subject of prescience and Mr. Chang or whomever, uh, in 1964, when I was at Oxford, Isaac Deutscher published the third and final volume of his worshipful biography of Trotsky. Hmm. And the Oxford Marxist Society had a T for him, so I trotted around for the T in the conversation. In the course of his remarks, Isaac Deutscher said the following. He says, proof of Trotsky's farsightedness is that none of his predictions have come true yet. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that's, that's it. That's dialectic, dialectical thinking for you. Exactly. I, I, what I would put, I, I would offer to think about is uh, looking on the bright side as I am disinclined to do. I have a feeling that there is uh, going to be a coalition of sensible conservatives and sensible progressives on behalf of a carbon tax. That is, they're going to say, look. Uh, the climate's become something of a monomania with the Biden administration. If they are serious, they're going to realize that it is slow and problematic to achieve climate, uh, have climate effects through subsidies of this and that industry and regulation of this and that industry, that the quick and efficient way uh, endorsed by George Schultz, the late George Schultz and other Republicans is a carbon tax, which brings the whole climate policy into the realm of economics and changing incentives in a rational way. And I have a feeling that six months from now, maybe the climate tax will be elbowing aside this multi-form agenda that whereby the Biden administration says everything must uh, relate to reducing climate risk, which of course we have no idea how to do other than through a climate tax. Uh yeah, that would be that would be lovely. There, there is actually though one thing that we could do that people do know would work. It's the only a question of whether we want to spend the money and uh, and the um, psychic effort to get it achieved, and that is make a huge investment in nuclear energy. Uh, so, all right, um, Bill Galston. Today, uh, two very powerful men made news. I'm not sure which is more powerful, but I will list them. Uh, uh, President Biden announced that he expected to run for re-election in 2024, uh, which I found interesting. Uh, and uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg reportedly, and perhaps while this podcast was going on, has already done so, uh, has endorsed revisions to the famous Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So the fat is now well and truly in that particular fire. Interesting. All right. Um, since it went over well last week, I'm going to um, give you a couple of onion headlines before I give my uh, highlight. Um, first headline from The Onion Georgia lawmakers warned stricter gun regulation could cause mass shooters to move to other states. <laughs> Second headline. 
Ted Cruz decries voting rights bill as shameless power grab by American people to control country. (laughs) 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 All right. Um, I would just like to put in a word for Chuck Lane, who uh, another previous guest on this podcast, who had a column this week arguing walls don't work, uh, open borders don't work, or at least are not feasible. Um, why not try realism? And one of the realistic things that he's proposing uh, is guest workers, guest worker programs. It is something that should appeal to both sides. If people were to strip away the emotion associated with this, um, there could be uh, greater uh, protections for the workers than we had during the Bracero program. And uh, it would, it would solve a lot of problems. Um, So just a thought, Charles Lane, uh, kudos to him. And with that, we would like to thank George Will for joining us. Thanks, Sarah Longwell, for sitting in for Linda this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Please rate and review us. You can find my email at bulwark.com and feel free to give me feedback. And we will return next week as every week.